Everybody read the method sections. It's so important. So important. Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randalls. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hello again, everyone. This is Dan Godby, medical editor of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Thank you for joining us for the winter 2020 edition of the JSOM podcast, So we at the JSOM are always interested in hearing from our readership and especially our medics. And I'd like to reiterate what I said last issue about our recently developed mentoring program that is specifically to help medics get through the publishing process. A select group of our editors are dedicated to concentrate on articles written by medics and to provide assistance in helping to get them published. Now, once again, here's Josh and Alex with the podcast. And Josh, welcome back. How was your Halloween, my friend? Uh, so I'm currently living on, uh, or living near a, a goat farm with, and I'm friends with. The, I love yeah, where no, this I'm, is going. Yeah, no, I'm so I'm friends with the farmer, and and he has this huge bonanza that goes on, starts it, it starts on the seventh of October, and it goes until the thirty first. He built his own haunted house for this thing, and he has people come and carve pumpkins with goats and uh, this is just wildly successful so there's people always there and so my halloween has been taking my kids repeatedly to a haunted house that they're kind of terrified of but they want to keep going and then dealing with crowds of people who are carving pumpkins with goats oh so it's like a east coast redneck version of goat yoga then is that it oh. I, I don't know he can't do goat yoga he used to do goat yoga but he can't do goat yoga because of covid so oh. apparently carving pumpkins with goats is the appropriately social distance halloween activity so alex you can take that with you and be like hey <laughs> carving pumpkins with goats oh, that's awesome just oh, a suggestion fun. i'm just you know just trying to help Right on. That's that's so so much fun. Uh, unfortunately, here in CRC quarantine, I don't get any goats or pumpkins because you know, Uncle Sam doesn't approve. But uh, <laughs> more importantly, what have we got on the billet for this edition? Well, Alex, the first article we're going to review this edition is "Life and Limb: In-Flight Surgical Intervention." 15 years of experience by Joint Medical Augmentation Unit Surgical Resuscitation Teams by Dr. DeBose, Dr. Steiner, Arik Bodelek, and others. So they were looking to describe the experience of a surgical resuscitation team designed to respond to emergency contingencies on the battlefield across multiple platforms, including point of injury, evacuation care, and also in established MTFs. They took a bunch of data from after action reviews and an experienced team PA and surgeon who was either a trauma surgeon or a vascular surgeon reviewed them. And these were all encounters by the surgical resuscitation teams. 
The authors extracted team utilization, again, point of injury, evacuation, or MTF. They looked at patient demographics, mechanism of injury, interventions prior to intercept, and interventions conducted by the team. A specific subgroup analysis was planned looking specifically at patients undergoing in-flight, life and limb preserving surgical intervention. So to point something out early, I want you to go and look at this article and look at the results diagram they provided because what I'm about to say might get a bit confusing and might not make a lot of sense. But if you look at the flowchart they provided, it's actually quite good and it'll provide a good breakdown on how they analyzed their data. They had 312 human and five canine encounters. They reviewed these encounters, and then to analyze survival outcomes, they separated their population into those who had signs of life at initial encounter versus those that did not. Of those that did, they looked at survival percentage in relation to where the patient was cared for, so that's either MTF augmentation, critical care transport, or tail-to-tail -tail from casualty evacuation, or pre-positioned forward ground structure, or mobile point of injury response. In this cohort of people who have signs of life, the majority of their encounters were at MTF augmentation sites, about 48.6%, and then that was followed by intercept during transport. The team primarily dealt with males who were suffering penetrating injuries. Initial interventions performed by the team were IV access, airway placement, and chest tube placement. They performed surgery on 87 of the 312 encounters. The major procedures were wound debridement and washout, about 22, X-lap 18, thoracotomy 13, and arterial shunting 12 of the 87. 20 patients had no signs of life prior to assessment by the team. One or 20% had return of vital signs after maximal salvage attempts, which they did not define. Seven of the 312 human casualties expired during care, four in MTF and three during transport. The median time to care from injury to the team was 60 minutes. The subgroup of patients who had surgical procedures performed during flight was a total of nine patients. Seven had resuscitative thoracotomies, one had a damage control X-lap, and one had an extremity fasciotomy for an acute lower extremity compartment syndrome. Three of the seven patients who underwent resuscitative thoracotomy in flight did not have signs of life at initial encounter, and one of the three survived. That one survived to discharge at stateside MTFs. So this article actually provides useful data on the use of small surgical teams in austere environments, how they're being employed, what procedures they're performing, and how many of their patients are surviving. So this is good because it provides planning for the future of austere surgical teams, as this has become an, a topic of which the Army has become very interested in. The cons of this article is that it was a lot of data reporting, and there wasn't any like useful analysis of the data. But I think given the limited amount of data that they probably had, and I imagine some pretty strict scrubbing, um, this is the best they could do right now. So I really appreciate it. So I think in the future, it would be nice to know what were the severity of the injuries, more patient demographics to include age, presence of comorbidity, and the like, and other data points that would help us with analysis of survival trends for these austere surgical teams. What did you think, Alex? So I, I, by and large, agree with your assessment of this manuscript. We don't know a ton about this organization. You know, we've seen a, a little bit more literature about this organization, their capability in the recent past. And when I first read this and the author list, I was inclined to just give it a rubber stamp and say, absolutely, yes, whatever these guys say is good to go. Joe DeBow, as we all know, is just outstanding. He's one of two vascular trauma surgeons in the entire military. I did a quick journal of trauma search for him and he has 321 citations 
and his podcast, Tiger Country, is just fantastic if folks aren't listening to it. The rest of the guys listed are, are just incredible. But while I was thinking about giving these guys a rubber stamp, I actually read the letter from the editor in the last Wilderness Environmental Medicine from Neil Pollock, who, who also does a great job. And he said, especially in this times of COVID with data uncertainty, we need to hold everyone accountable to uh, being strict in their analysis and interpretation of data, no matter what regard we hold those in. And, and that really changed my thinking. And so the biggest complaint that I have with this is the title, Life and Limb In-Flight Surgical Interventions. And then they go on to describe 317 casualties that this great team has performed interventions on. However, when you look at life and limb in-flight interventions, there are only nine patients in this 15-year data set. And we know well that these types of articles are used to implement, change, modify, uh, policy going forward, and especially when it comes to implementation of a new team or capability, it, it really matters that these publications are accurate and uh, correct. And I, I think they did a large disservice to themselves uh, and the larger community by really confusing the issue of titling this as a in-flight capability, yet the overwhelming majority of all of their patients listed were not in-flight. That's that's really all I've got to say. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. All right. Next up, we've got austere surgical team management of an unusual tropical disease, a case study in East Africa by Cullen Stevens, Thronson Brillhart, and Dr. Julie Rizzo. So they do a really nice job of going through a case study for a nine-year-old male that presented to a military medical clinic in the Horn of Africa with months of fever and painful ulcerations on his face and extremities. They do a really, really nice job here of talking about how they worked up the differential diagnosis using the DOD telemedicine program and eventually come to a diagnosis of Beruli ulcers, which are caused by Mycobacterium ulcerans, which is the third most common cause of Mycobacterium infections after TB, our favorite friend. And then they discuss how they came up with a treatment plan, again, using telemedicine. But more importantly, what I really like here is they go into detail about how their treatment plan had to be modified for the austere environment that was resource constrained that they were in and how they came around some of those challenges and how the patient was lost to follow up with a subsequent return to the clinic and then their expectation of um, improving life care. And so as always with anything from Dr. Rizzo, this is just a really, really great manuscript with a ton of teaching points that can't recommend enough, especially for those of us who are going into the austere environment for um, extended periods of time with limited resources. This article highlights all of the things that soft medicine does really well and that's deal with resource limitation with very difficult disease and and not well-known disease processes calling for help and really hopefully having a, a good outcome for this this patient so you should definitely read this and and see how they went went about dealing with this particular difficult bacteria yep And for our guest medic reviewer this edition, we've got Greg Spencer. Welcome to the podcast. What have you got for us this month? 
Well, hey, Josh and Alex. Uh, first of all, I appreciate you all having me on the podcast. Uh, without, go ahead and break into this article, which is titled, An Analysis and Comparison of Pre-Hospital Trauma Care Provided by Medical Officers and Medics on the Battlefield. Now, this is an original research published by several providers, which I've actually had the privilege of working under, and it's always exciting to recognize names on publications. Now, breaking into the content. The abstract, in the author's words, Role 1 care represents all aspects of pre-hospital care on the battlefield. Recent conflicts and military operations conducted on behalf of the global war on terrorism has resulted in medical officers, or MOs, being utilized non-doctrinally on combat missions. We are seeking to describe Role 1 trauma care provided by MOs and compare this care to that provided by medics. This is a secondary analysis of previously described data from the Pre-Hospital Trauma Registry and the Department of Defense Trauma Registry from April 2003 through May 2019. Encounters were categorized by care provider, MO, or medic. If both were documented, they were categorized as MO. Those without either were excluded. Descriptive statistics were used. For the results, a total of 826 casualty encounters met inclusion. There were 418 encounters categorized as MO and 408 encounters categorized as medic only. The composite injury severity score, median interquartile range, was higher for casualties treated by the medic cohort than for the MO cohort. There was no difference in survival to discharge between the MO and medic groups. More life-saving interventions were performed by MOs compared to medics, and MOs demonstrated a higher rate of vital sign documentation than the medics. And the conclusion, more than half of casualty encounters in this study listed a MO in the chain of care. The difference in proportion of interventions highlight differences in provider skills, training, and equipment, or the interventions were dictated by differences in mechanisms of injury. The format of this article was appropriate and reader-friendly. All data was depicted clearly throughout the text, and it culminated with various tables to define the values. Additionally, all data directly supported the intent of this study, which is always important for obvious reasons. Now, some of the pros of this study. So, interestingly enough, years ago I actually had a conversation with Dr. April, who's one of the contributing authors, specifically about identifying areas of practice in which a MO or medic was more or less proficient than the other in developing a curriculum, for lack of a better term, in order to effectively cross-train the two practices. This article clearly defines some key practices that need to be cross-trained in order to improve survival rates, regardless of the level of the provider that is initiating treatment. Additionally, thumbs up to the fact that based off of the calculated p-value, medics are performing considerably well compared to the medical officers in the realm of pre-hospital trauma care. I also appreciate the quantity of encounters study, 826 encounters to sift through, and the fact the data was collected all the way back to 2003. We're not just talking about 2018 or 2019 medical trends. The authors reach far back to expand and validate this study. Some of the cons of this article. I do think that the article could have addressed the time of hands-on care with each patient rather than just personnel involved. The intent of the study was to evaluate care based off of the provider level, though I feel that the time to address health threats might have led to a more intriguing study. Maybe patients went with or without certain treatments due to legitimate time constraints. Still, I'll recognize the fact that the authors do include phrasing that alludes to the reality of the time constraints 
especially at the point of injury level of care. Per the article, this information was not gathered given the pre-hospital trauma registry does not capture situational, tactical, or environmental data. So Alex, what does this mean for medicine moving forward? Well, ultimately, this research identifies several areas in which we must improve our practice. Medics. Document, document, document. Additionally, let's emphasize the mastering of both basic and life-saving interventions. To our medical officers, take the time with your medics to routinely practice point-of-injury trauma lanes. Time yourself. Work out of a minimalist bag. After all, this is unconventional medicine. So, did the author's research accomplish the goal of identifying differences in care provided to pre-hospital trauma patients by a medic versus an MO? Yes. It also validated the fact that there is no difference in survival to discharge between the MO and the medic group. Furthermore, a beneficial study to conduct based off of this article would be the analysis of MO time with the patient versus medic time with the patient. Ultimately, Alex, great article, great authors, and great outcomes. Thanks again, guys. And for our last article, we have a case series on 2 grams TXA flush from the 75th Ranger Regiment Casualty Database. Alex, why don't you tell us about this paper? Yeah, so this is a really interesting read that I highly encourage everyone to go through with us. So this case series through the 75th Ranger Regiment is a retrospective performance improvement project looking at patients who have received their new CPG of 2 grams of TXA. And essentially when you break down any study in the introduction, I like to make sure that there is a gap in the literature that is identified as well as the clinical question. And so for this one, what they say is that there may be a benefit to giving two grams of TXA initially instead of the one and one that's historically done. But there is not a significant amount of data to support that practice. And so that was really their gap in the literature. And their clinical question was, is this a safe practice? So the authors do a really nice job of describing a timeline in which in 2014, the 10-minute TXA drip was replaced with a slow push over two minutes and then further morphed into 2019 when medics were given the option to flush with two grams of TXA either through IV or IO. And so then in the methods section, which Josh, I know you harp on as being the most important part of any article, they talk about how their performance improvement procedure was to retrospectively look through the identified patient care reports through the 75th Ranger Regiment and identify any patients who received a 2-gram TXA flush, either through IV or IO. And they do a nice job of describing how they identified all of those patients over a 6-plus year time period, and then coning down to only those patients that received the 2-gram flush, and that was an N of 6. Then, because this is a retrospective case series, they just describe a little bit of analysis and each of the individual cases. And then in their summary of cases, what they go on to note is that despite 
varying battlefield complexities, all casualties received a 2-gram TXA flush within the first 45 minutes of assessment, including 4 by IV and 2 by IO. In each case, there was no documented clinically significant hypotension, seizure, or anaphylaxis during the pre-evacuation period immediately following TXA administration. And in the discussion, I, I think they do a really nice job of noting a number of the limitations of this PI project, which is that this is an exceptionally small N. This was done in combat environment, which is really challenging. It was done in a low light environment, and it was done specifically under the protocols of the Ranger Handbook, which is very, very different from even conventional forces and, more importantly, from civilian practice patterns. And while this practice may be appropriate for the Rangers who have done a great analysis both for their ground force commander as well as their medical leadership, I think the authors do a really nice job of highlighting the fact that this is certainly an inadequate data set to change clinical practice. And so now switching over to our editorialization, again, the Rangers always lead the way, and I in no way, shape, or form mean to take away from their practice pattern here because the Rangers have a very unique job to do. So these guys get to do whatever they want. I'm sure it's very well thought out, comma, however. Just purely from a medical research perspective, there are a number of challenges here with their background and literature cited. So, you know, this was pretty tip of the spear changes to clinical practice, but is, is probably, I would say, very premature to change practice anywhere else. And, and more specifically, what I mean here is they talk about back in 2013, they changed practice, and I, I tried to look for some the citations that would support that practice back then, either with the, the two grams, the IV flush, or the IO, and I actually really couldn't find any at all. They then cite a pretty good article from 2018 in the Journal of Trauma called No Intravenous Access, No Problem, Intraosseous Administration of Tranexamic Acid is an Effective as Intravenous in a Porcine Hemorrhage Model. And I, I read that article, and Despite the fact that it's from Dr. Martin et al. up at the Madigan Lab, who are just rock stars, I found a number of problems with the research itself. And so did a number of other authors who wrote letters to the editor of the Journal of Trauma with a, a number of very specific counterpoints, noting that the article was misleading in its interspecies extrapolations and conclusions. And then as we know from Dr. DeSusi, who actually did an IV and IM versus IO evaluation of TXA in a porcine model, this is really not yet ready to change practice. And then there was an article back in 2018 in the JSOM discussing intramuscular tranexamic acid in tactical combat settings, and they said that there really wasn't any literature to support that. The IO access, in my mind, is not in any way, shape, or form ready for conventional forces. So with that said, let's go through the quality assessment questionnaire. Listeners, always remember you can go out and look at this information. Alex, where do you find this stuff? Full disclosure, Josh, we did blatantly steal this idea from our furry friends in the North, Dr. Ken Milne, who runs the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, and he uses the critical appraisal tools from the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine out of the University of Oxford which is available online at cebm.ox.ac.uk. 
front slash, a bunch of other stuff, but super easy to find on the internet. The Center for Evidence-Based Medicine Critical Appraisal Tools. And which one of their many appraisal tools are we using today, Josh? So we're looking at the critical appraisal of qualitative studies. So, Alex, are you ready? Hit me, bro. Was the qualitative approach appropriate? Yes. Was the sampling strategy appropriate for the approach? Yes. What were the data collection methods? Uh, we discussed those in the review, and the readers are encouraged to always read the methods section of the paper themselves. Everybody read the methods sections. It's so important. <laughs> Footstop. So important. So important. How were data analyzed, and how were these checked? So as we talked about, essentially the data extractors looked through the six case series and looked for the primary outcome, which was any of the three side effects that were identified previously. Is the researcher's position described? Yes. So it asks, what were the results? But we've talked about that already. But do the results make sense? No. And the conclusions drawn justified by the results, do those make sense? No, a retrospective evaluation of six patients looking for a very infrequent side effect in the back of a dark helicopter or a dark battlefield seems uh, inappropriate to assess whether this new modality is safe and effective. And lastly, are the findings transferable to other clinical settings? Not at this point. This does not appear to be a practice ready for either conventional forces or civilian practice. And if one of my civilian medics were to do this and get uh, sued or found to be negligent, I'd have a really hard time defending the practice at this point with the data we have. Well, Josh, to answer some of our questions about this manuscript, we have the privilege of chatting with one of the enlisted authors, and today we're joined by Master Sergeant Gonzalez, Senior Medical Enlisted Advisor for the 75th Ranger Regiment. Welcome. Hello, how you doing? Oh, so nice to have you here. Really excited to chat with the particular component of the author list that is most experienced with providing this point of injury level of care. So thanks for spending time with us today. And we see multiple citations showing efficacy of intraosseous TXA in a porcine model. Did you find any published human or benchtop studies to support your practice? No, we did not find any studies because in the pre-hospital civilian setting, nobody is really pushing TXA through an IO. Okay, well, that's helpful and good to know. We see in your case studies that the systolic blood pressure for all patients is either 80 or 60 millimeters of mercury via the Ranger Handbook method to obtain blood pressure as a palpable pulse at the radial or jugular artery. Do you have any evidence to support this practice? Uh, we learned this practice many decades ago in pre-hospital civilian practice, but more recently it's been found to not correlate to clinical measures in prospective human studies and has not been taught in ATLS for several series. Is the presence of a palpable pulse more accurate as a surrogate for adequate perfusion? No, we do not have any evidence to support this practice. Another chart for palpable pulse was on page 31 in our Ranger Medic Handbook in bold text. It states, it is important to state that the above pressure ranges are merely quick estimates of systolic blood pressures and are generally overestimated and inaccurate. 
They are used during a rapid initial assessment of a trauma patient. Actual blood pressure measurement and a complete patient assessment should direct your trauma and shock management decisions. Okay, got it. Thanks. You note that no complications were found in your analysis. How confident are you in the ability of your granted outstanding medics to identify complications such as hypotension in your low light setting without blood pressure monitoring equipment? And how confident are you that the retrospective review of the written record is 100% accurate? If the blood pressures were to drop, it would be minimal to cause any complications to react to. On page 244 of the Ranger Medic Handbook, under minimum aid bag packing list, it is required for all medics to carry a manual blood pressure cuff. I'm confident that the medic will be able to identify complications such as hypertension. And lastly, we noted that this practice feels appropriate for the 75th operating environment, but you note that additional research should be obtained going forward. What research do you think should be obtained prior to considering extending your protocol into conventional forces or civilian practice? Well, I think since COTSI changed their protocol to administering two grams of TXA, I think conventional forces now should start practicing and training that protocol and initiating it instead of using the old one gram over 10 minutes method. And do you think that this is ready to translate over to civilian practice? Not sure about that, maybe. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, Master Sergeant, thank you so much for your time, insight, and outstanding submission to the JSOM. We appreciate all of your efforts and those of the Rangers leading the way in everything, including point of injury combat care. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Well, Alex, that about covers it for the winter 2020 edition of the JSOM podcast. Do remember to go through and read all the rest of the articles in the JSOM. You never know when you might find that next practice-changing article. And if you're interested in helping out and presenting next year, please do reach out to us, podcast at jsomonline.org. We are looking for you, the actively practicing soft medic, to present one of the papers from the JSOM uh, in about five minutes or so at SOMA next year with us, and we would love your help. Uh, if you are at all interested, we would be more than happy to facilitate and guide you through that process, but we need you because we're just bags of hot air. You are what matters. So please reach out at podcast at jsomonline.org. And then we had so many interviews to do for the 20th anniversary of the JSOM's podcast series. We've got a couple that are going to go into January. So do keep listening for those. Alex is going to interview Dr. Frank Butler on TC3, its evolution over the past 20 years, and how it's impacted medical practice in the deployed setting. And as Mel Herbert over at MRAP always likes to say, don't forget that what you do matters. So thank you all out there for the amazing work that you do here in Garrison and overseas to do great things, taking care of great people. Really appreciate all that you do, and we look forward to seeing you next time. This is Sophia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers. 
and welcome your feedback and suggestions. This is Colonel Shackelford from the Joint Trauma System reminding you to submit your DD-1380 and TC-3 AAR to JTS after the mission.